0: From the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, this is The Porch. I'm Matt Bush, and for the next hour, we'll hear some great journalism about a housing voucher program that's not living up to its stated ideals in North Carolina. And if you missed any portion of a new series we premiered this week on BPR featuring local youth expressing themselves through poetry, you'll hear it, and you don't want to miss it. But first, what the f***? (laughs) This has to be the most expressed phrase when discussing Western North Carolina politics, not just this week or this month, but honestly, for some time. Our political analyst, Dr. Chris Cooper, and I tried to answer that question following Congressman Madison Cawthorne's decision to run in a different district next year.
1: Our district, I think, in a lot of ways represents what's happened with American politics. If you look at redistricting or gerrymandering, depending on your perspective, if you look at what's happened with party polarization... Um, and just the nationalization of local politics. I think you see it all in the mountains. So the 11th Congressional District, which we've been known since the 1960s, is traditionally the western part of the state. Um, we were back in, well, we were a Democratic district for a good while, and the early 1980s, a uh, Republican finally sort of cracked that Democratic establishment. So a guy named Bill Hinden, won is a Republican. And then we had um, about 10 years where Hinden and uh, Jamie Clark, who's a Democrat, went back and forth. So Hinden would win one time, McClure would win the next time. They went back and forth so often that the Wall Street Journal, Carlaw District, the turnstile, right? So we just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. The last time Clark beats McClure, excuse me, Clark beats um, beats Hinden. he's in for another term. And then we get a long term of Charles Taylor, Republican still around the region. Charles Taylor, um, uh, represented us for a number of years, one of the longest-serving in our district. He was then unseated by Heath Shuler, a Democrat, who is also still in the region. Um, so Shuler, of course, was a Blue Dog Democrat, one of the real last Blue Dogs, so a conservative Democrat by by really any measure. Um, and then that's where redistricting or gerrymandering really changed our district in a radical way. So the city of Asheville, or the vast majority of the city of Asheville, was carved out of the 11th was placed into the 10th. Keith Schuler then decided to not run for office. Um, again, his chief of staff, a guy named Hayden Rogers, ran as a Democrat. Um, the Republican field was very, very crowded and there was somebody who had never won elected office before named Mark Meadows from the far Western part of the district. So Meadows ran, Meadows won the first primary. He was forced into a second primary. He actually won the second primary as well. Then of course, served a number of terms in office, became chief of staff for President Trump. Again, we see a massive change. We see a huge field. We see the third largest field in the United States. The initial Republican primary did have Madison Cawthorn, but uh, it was not initially won by Madison Cawthorn. It was won by Linda Bennett, who was uh, very close to the Martin Meadows camp. And uh, Bennett won the first primary. If we lived somewhere outside of the South, frankly, Linda Bennett would be our member of Congress. But we do live in the South. We have runoff rules. Those runoff rules took over. So we forced a second primary or runoff. And that's when Madison Cawthorn won on the
0: Republican side. So even before Madison Gawthorne decided to run in a different district, we had three Republican challengers facing him in what is now the 14th. Uh, the fourth one just announced um, overnight. The fourth one just announced now, and that is Michelle Woodhouse, who's the current district chair for uh, – Republican district chair for North Carolina 11. Got a lot of others considering. So um, you said this could be repeat of, of the 2020 primary, which had 11 candidates and had to go to a runoff. So um, how many more are we going to see at this point?
1: Sure. I wish I knew, wish my crystal ball would would come up with that specific of a number, Um, but I would say more. (laughs) I think we're going to see more folks come in. I mean, there are rumors of essentially any elected official in Western North Carolina who's a Republican. There's probably some rumor that says they're going to get in. Um, I believe Corey Valancourt had a piece where um, he confirmed that um, uh, Kevin Corbin from North Carolina's 50th Senate district is actually considering a run, has said that on the record. Ralph Heiss mentioned to uh, the News and Observer in Raleigh that he was considering a run. There are certainly, again, rumors about really most other people that are, you know, representing anybody in the West. Um, So we're going to see a big field. We're going to see a crowded field. We're going to see a messy field. The Michelle Woodhouse news that broke last night is very interesting. Um, She is, uh, you know, somebody who's obviously connected very recently to the Republican Party. In Western North Carolina, she's the chair of the the Western North Carolina 11th Congressional District Republicans, Um, and it does seem like Madison Cawthorn and Michelle Woodhouse have a very, very good relationship. So a lot of us are wondering whether she was the conservative fighter that he was talking about in his release
0: right the the move by cawthorn that was announced last week may not have been as much of a surprise as you were looking at filings as you always do you saw something a couple months ago that may have hinted that this had been in the works for a while and then we'll get into how this is a very similar um pattern to what we saw two years ago but tell us what uh what you saw a couple months ago that may have been a sign that this was coming
1: yeah so you know if you look at campaign finance reports. because I know everybody does, but uh, but I do with my coffee some mornings. And uh, what I saw from August was that Madison Cawthorn had donated $1,000 to the Michelle V. Woodhouse committee. Now, donating money to another candidate is not unusual. You see that in lots of people's filings. What was interesting here was that Michelle Woodhouse, of course, was not a candidate. She wasn't running for any office that any of us knew about. And so uh, it, we don't know. We don't know exactly what was going on there, but it does lead me to suspect that this might have been in the works for a little bit longer than is being acknowledged. He Gave her $1,000 to a campaign committee in August. We're now hearing in November about this decision.
0: Um, you know, it does certainly raise some questions. But this is almost, almost a carbon copy of what happened two years ago with Mark Meadows and Linda Bennett, right?
1: That's exactly right. So for those folks who might have washed that part out of their memory banks, um, when Mark Meadows uh, stepped down, he stepped down on a Wednesday. Uh, the day of the week is rarely important in politics, but it is in this case because earlier that week was the last day somebody could pull out of one office and run for another. In other words, if you were already um, declared for General Assembly, you could no longer pull out and run for Congress. Friday was the filing date. So essentially, what the timing of Mark Meadows' decision did was it boxed out any elected official from declaring to run for the 11th Congressional District. Linda Bennett, who uh, has been described as his wife's best friend or very close friend, um, was ready immediately with a press release. Um, She had a website that I believe was actually registered by Mark Meadows' brother before this date. So essentially, everybody thought that. Mark Meadows wanted Linda Bennett to win the seat. He then endorsed Linda Bennett. He then got President Trump to endorse Linda Bennett. I mean, the writing was clearly on the wall that that's what was happening. Um, Linda Bennett, of course, as we all know now, lost the second primary, is not in office. And most folks think that a big reason why is that the Republican establishment didn't like having their next member of Congress be chosen, be chosen for them by the exiting member. And so I think a lot of us are very interested to see what happens now. Does Michelle Woodhouse get uh, sort of painted with that same Linda Bennett brush?
0: And we're going to get to more of that in a little bit uh, once we talk about our, our soon-to-be former Congressman uh, Madison Cawthorn. We'll get to that in a second, but uh, I do want to talk first of one more thing about the 14th, and that is new lines, and a lot of the national coverage at the very least kept mentioning this, but we want to go to you as the local expert to really say how much of this is actually true. It said one of the reasons that maybe Cawthorn had left was that the district would be more competitive, which under the new lines it would be, but there was a chance Democrats could win. It's a narrow path, I think as it's been described. I've even heard you say that. What is that? What are the changes in the lines that would give Democrats a narrow path to win? And then how do they walk that narrow path? Should they be able to win?
1: Yeah. So the, the enacted lines, so the lines that are that were drawn and passed, um, drop McDowell, Polk, and half of Rutherford County. So those are currently in the eleventh. They will not be in the 14th. They've been moved over to the 13th, which is as we'll get to Cawthorn's new district, evidently. We've also added most of Watauga County. And the reason I say most of Watauga County is that Virginia Fox, who is a Republican incumbent, lives in the southwestern corner of Watauga County. So Watauga County is sort of carved out There's a little boot in the southwest portion. And you can see that's Virginia Fox's house. That district is now called the 11th. I know it's confusing. And the 11th then wraps around and grabs most of Guilford County where a Democrat named Kathy Manning lives. So what does that mean for those of us in the West? It means that the 11th is now number the 14th. It means that most, but not all of Watauga County is in our district. And again, it means that McDowell, half of Rutherford and Polk are now gone. So this has moved it from virtually no chance a Democrat could win to it would be like, uh, you know, an App State beating Michigan kind of moment. It does happen. Um, but it's rare. So right now, there is one member of Congress up in Maine who's a Democrat who represents a district as Republican as the 14th is currently drawn. So as to what Cawthorn's rationale was, you know, obviously I don't know, and I try to not put motives on on folks when I when I don't know. Um, but I will say that he was likely to win the 14th as it was drawn. Um, he is more likely, I guess, to win the 13th but this is like a major league baseball team um you know playing a single A team versus a double A team they're probably going to beat Either
0: one of them. So, what is the path? A lot of this would need a, a big turnout on college campuses because, with the new lines of the 14th and Watauga County, the campus of Appalachian State University, which is about double the size of the university here at Western Carolina, which is also in the district, there would have to be a lot of turnout amongst college students for Democrats to be successful. That's who they typically have been successful with. So, yeah, describe the narrow path for us, and is that? Is it doable? I guess is really the million dollar question or billion dollar right. question.
1: Is it doable? I mean, certainly there's a reason we have elections, and again, there is one example in Maine of somebody pulling off something similar. But it would be um, it would be an upset, and I, I think every Democrat and Republican would acknowledge that this is a heavily Republican district as it was drawn, as it is drawn. So, what is the path for Democrats? You know, I I think Appalachian State and Boone is is clearly part of it. Watauga has been one of the bluer counties in Western North Carolina. Um, College student turnout can be tricky. Not all those folks, of course, are registered in Watauga County. They may not be registered in the 14th Congressional District at all. Um, But I think driving up turnout in Boone, driving up uh, turnout certainly among Appalachian State students and UNC Asheville students and Western students would matter. For uh, any Democrat who would want to win. At the same time, that's not enough, right? These are are still fairly small numbers in the scheme of things. Young people, unfortunately, there's nothing to do with partisanship, but I wish young people would, would certainly vote more than they do. So that's a tough thing to do. So what does a Democrat have to do to win? They really need to just run up the score where they can. So Buncombe County, the southern part of Madison County, henderson county to some degree I mean, certainly henderson county's red everyone acknowledges that but henderson county is moving bluer faster than all but one other county in the state of north carolina so there is some movement in henderson county um a democrat would need to take back jackson county yes the university but the county in general which tended to be a little more purple than some of the other counties and a democrat would need to limit losses elsewhere they can't get killed In, you know, Macon, Swain, Graham, Clay, Cherokee counties, the far western counties. Yes, every one of those counties is small. But if the Republican Party wins those counties in big numbers, a Democrat can't win no matter what they do elsewhere in the district.
0: Okay, now on to Madison Cawthorn, the Western North Carolina soon to be former uh, congressman, as it looks like he will be representing. Should he win? He still has to win. But it's obviously uh, very much in his favor winning this new district in the 13th, which includes uh, which goes back towards Charlotte. Um, What does it say about his political career that he wants to represent this district as opposed to the one that he does live in and first one?
1: You know, it's funny. On the one hand, it's incredibly surprising. Um, Why would somebody do that? On the other hand, I think we've come to expect surprises from Madison Cawthorn. Um, So why would he do it again? You know, his intent, I I can't be sure of. My sense is it probably doesn't have as much to do with the district draw. Again, I mean, he'd raised over $2 million. He was likely to win the 14th. Um, Charlotte is a much bigger media market and that is perhaps at play for him. He's made no secret that he is interested in running for governor in the sort of medium term once he is of age. And so perhaps he thinks he increases his footprint then he, that's a bigger voter base essentially to run for the governor's mansion, that's possible. Um, I think it's also possible that he likes that we're having this conversation, that he likes that he was able to successfully take on the establishment. I mean, this is a freshman member of Congress who called a sitting U.S. senator, Republican from his own state, a rhino and a terrible campaigner. So I think the idea that the 13th Congressional District was drawn for the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, um, and that Cawthorn was able to announce, and very quickly, just a few hours later, Tim Moore announced that he would not be running for that district. Um, I think it it reinforces the brand that he's selling, which is one that is not afraid to take on his own party. Um, and again, I think this conversation, and conversations like this, is one reason he does it. He seeks attention, he gets attention,
0: one of our previous chats this month, you said there is this growing schism between establishment Republicans and this wing of, of the Republican Party that Cawthorne's a part of. And I think you also mentioned that Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson is also a part of. They, they're they winning elections right now, whereas the establishment winning elections, too, but also taking a back seat at least in this sort of media game of, of making sure that they have attention. Um and the Cawthorn versus Moore showdown that lasted a couple hours, I guess you could say, in the 13th last week uh, shows that, the, you know, the Cawthorn-Robinson side is winning a lot. But you did see some of the, you know, aftermath, some of the um, uh, coverage, particularly there's a piece in the Charlotte Observer, that bigwig Republican in Mecklenburg County saying if Madison Cawthorne's the f- future, the face of our party, the Republican Party, then there is no future. Which one of them is closer to right?
1: You know, I think if the district line's look the way they look now then um it's just a matter of which republican is going to win right so the downside is just of of taking this more radical path that cawthorn has taken it just isn't much downside right um so which one's gonna win out i don't know i thought that was an interesting statement um that was also if i remember correctly from from charles cheater who is a former member of the north county general assembly um I would like to to see what some members of the North Carolina General Assembly who are currently in office would have to say on the record. Um, And I think it's going to take some on-the-record statements by establishment Republicans like Jeter, but ones who were still in office. Even Tim Moore, who was clearly disappointed um, that he wasn't able to run for or didn't think he could win for Congress, stopped a little bit short of really going after Coughlin. Right. He said he was surprised, but he didn't really talk about his message.
0: This might actually be the billion-dollar question. Maybe this is the multi-billion-dollar question as these questions just keep going, escalating in significance. But there are lawsuits over these maps. If these lawsuits are successful, what happens? Because we have this new district because of population growth shown in the, senten- in the census. So there still needs to be this new district for the election next year. But what if these lawsuits are successful and these maps are overturned? What's going to happen next?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that is the, the 10, as you said, $10 billion question these days. So there are really three, I believe, lawsuits that have been filed as of this morning. So one came just a couple of days ago. Those are on the congressional lines. And I'll, I'll answer your question on what will happen. But I think we should also remember, it's very possible that there will also be lawsuits on our General Assembly lines. So we've been talking a lot today, as we should, about Congress and what those lines will look like. The General Assembly lines have switched as well. Those could also change based on lawsuits. We'll just have to see. As far as what would happen, I mean, I think there's a few paths. I mean, one is obviously that the lawsuits might fail. And so we're going to stick with the current lines. Another possibility is that the court um, decides that we should push back the election day. So right now we're all eyeballing early December is the filing deadline. In March is when we're going to have primaries. Um I would write that down in your calendar, but I would write it, uh, if you write it in ink, I'd write it in the erasable ink. Um, it is certainly possible that we move the primary day back to, let's say, May, the filing deadline shifts. Another possibility is that we go through with these elections, the way they're drawn, and then in two years or four years, the lines get challenged and shift again. So unfortunately, we're not done with this conversation. I'm not sure what the shape of it's going to take, but I'm certain the conversation's going to continue.
0: That's Western Carolina University political scientist, Dr. Chris Cooper. I have a feeling we'll be talking with him again. But hey, we have all the time in the world. We'll be back on the porch, a production of the BPR News Team, after this short break. welcome back to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. I'm Matt Bush. This week on Blue Ridge Public Radio, we premiered StoryCraft. It's a partnership with Asheville Writers in the Schools and Community. We're giving a platform to youth to share their experiences through poetry. Seku Coleman of Asheville Writers in the Schools and Community and BPR's Director of Content, Catherine Comp, lead us into StoryCraft.
2: So over six weeks this summer, we collaborated with a group of middle school youth at the Grant Center in this exploration of the senses and identity.
3: But we can't wait to share these youth voices with you. So we're gonna get started with 15-year-old Antonio Stinson, now in the ninth grade at Asheville High School.
4: The name of my poem is Who Am I? I am music because that is what I am. I am music because that is what I know. I am music because that is what I do. I am music because that is what I know how to do. I am music because that is what I'm born into. I am music because that is who I am. I am music because that is what I want to do. I am music because my life is a constant song just stuck on repeat, waiting for things to pan out. I am music because I feel like I don't fit in anywhere in the world. I am music because music frees me from the real world. I am music because my life is a constant beat and I'm ready to shift the tone. I am music because my life is like a book, ready to get on the next chapter. I am music because I feel like nobody understands me whatever I'm telling them and I'm ready for them to turn up the volume so they can hear me. I am music because I am like a newborn baby being told what to do. I am music because that is what describes me. I am music because that is what I make new friends with. I am music because that is what I discovered how to do. I am music because that is what I connect with. I am music because that is what I have fun with. I am music because that is my passion. And I am music because that is my key to life.
2: Wow uh so many powerful lines to contemplate and that that poem you know is is music itself and you know antonio wrote that about himself and his experiences but i feel like i can relate with every line
3: what what comes to mind to me is just the way that music has always had that ability to unite people from various cultures, from various languages, from various backgrounds. And for most of us, for many of us, rather, there's a connection with music, even at an early age. It happened for myself and for a lot of people that I know. I've seen it happen with my children. And, and, and Antonio in this poem, I think, is very adeptly sharing what that experience is like through his eyes, but doing it also in a way that has elements of musical structure, musical composition to it. And, and I found that very, uh, very beautiful.
2: Here's what Antonio had to say about what he wants people to take away from his poem.
4: Just, um, I want them to think about good times, like when things were good, because that is what it is for me. Music helps me free from the real world, like I said, in my poem, and it just helps me have fun.
2: Antonio is also a singer, and we were lucky enough um, to have him share a bit of these talents with us. In the
4: shah-shah-lo, in the shah sha la la in the shah sha lo We're far from the shallow now.
2: Thank you, Antonio, for your words and your brilliance and and spending time with us adult mentors. You've given us a lot to think about.
3: Agreed. And I just really appreciate the opportunity that we had to provide this space and this platform for these young people, Uh, particularly for youth of color like Antonio. They are rarely asked their opinion. They are rarely asked what they think, uh, how they see themselves. And this was just a beautiful um, extended experience for them to dig into uh, who they were, what they see and to be affirmed and and loved for who they are and how they show up.
5: Hi, I'm Elizabeth Lachey Garland, and I'm the owner and founder of Slay the Mic and STM Multimedia.
6: Hi, I'm Micah McKenzie. I'm an artist slash mentor here in Asheville, North Carolina.
5: We are two artist mentors that developed the Story Craft Project. During our first workshop with the youth, we sat down and got to know each other. Um, we were able to create and have a conversation around who we are, what is important to us and how we can capture our senses and then how do we portray that in such a creative way.
6: With the first sessions, we definitely had to find our way.
5: I know we have another powerful, complex poem and this one is really beautiful in the sense of capturing passions and identity and being simply being
6: here's the first part of 15 year old tori stinson's poem who am i
5: i am a dancer
7: dance is who i am dance is what i do i dance for myself dance is my happy place i love to dance the dance is my everything i'm a person who had a bad childhood but when i dance dance is my go-to thing to erase the past and move on Dance makes me calm. Dance is who I am. I am freestyle dance. Dance is my escape. It's my escape from negative energy and bad things. Dance is my superpower. When I dance, I feel like I'm in my own world.
5: Tori told us some beautiful descriptions of who she is just by capturing dance. She said, I wanted to get it off my chest, just to get it off my back, and have something to talk about and inspire people who've been through the same thing I've been through. Talk about your pain with somebody. It feels good to get it out.
6: And she kept writing. Tori had a lot more to say.
7: I'm a person with a lot of pain been inside. That's when the dancing part comes in. My pain comes from different stages of my life. Elementary school was a struggle. I got bullied and picked on. While in elementary school, people would comment on my skin saying and calling me black monkey. I don't remember everything because I blocked it out. Middle school was my fighting part of my life for self-confidence. That's where dance came back into my life. In middle school, I was ashamed of myself because of insecurities. I can't really talk about them because it's personal. I'm a person that have loved the body that I'm in to dance and have that freedom. I am from the sensation of dance. I created my own world of dance. Dance is my best friend. It's been there since day one. Dance is what made me block out all the hate and negativity in my life. Dance is my happy place. Dance is my everything.
5: So as I reflect on uh, what Tori shared, I think I have to reflect on my own happy place and also where I find the most joy. Um, It definitely allowed me to think back to the 12-year-old Elizabeth Lachey and who and what I needed at that age. And I was just so honored to be able to witness and hear her experiences uh, throughout this process.
6: When I look back upon what they originally wrote in their first drafts, it was raw emotion that they were telling us. It was raw feelings. It, it, was, it was them expressing themselves in a new way that they have never done before. In most of their eyes, I could definitely see that. So it was absolutely fascinating to see how much they blossomed throughout this process.
5: Tori shared that it felt good to get this pain out.
7: I'll just give some friendly advice. Be yourself. You don't have to you like change yourself for anybody. So just be yourself. You know, if you got pain, just let it out. Share it with somebody. Or like, but I just did write it out on paper. It makes you feel so much better.
6: I know it takes a lot for me to bear my soul. I know it takes a lot for me to even validate what I'm feeling. For these children to come out and expose themselves and to heal in front of me was one of the most beautiful gifts I could receive. Who am I? Who am I?
8: Who am I? I am a brother, I am a friend, I am a cousin, I am a hero. I am the beat to the music, from the music to the beat.
7: I am a dancer, dance
9: is who I am. I am small, a tiny germ clinging to existence.
4: I am music because my life is a constant beat, and I'm ready to shift the tone.
2: This is Katherine Comp, BPR's Director of Content, and I am back with Sekou Coleman, Executive Director for Asheville Writers in the Schools and Community.
3: And we've been collaborating with artist mentors in the Grant Center on some really impactful youth storytelling workshops, using an exploration of the census to guide youth and to what their senses can tell them about place, family, and identity. During the summer months, they wrote some powerful poems, and we're going to jump right in because we have multiple pieces to share with you today.
2: First up is Liam Burton. He's an eighth grader at Montford North Star Academy. Hello. My name is
9: Liam Burton, and this is my poem. I am from, I am from the taste of chicken pot pie and lemon lime freezer pops. I'm from the smell of freshly cut grass and pine sap drifting on the breeze. I am from the sound of crows calling, dogs barking, and birds flitting from tree to tree. I am from the side of the blue ridge towering above me, watching over us as a guardian over its charge. I am from the sensation of bare feet pounding the earth and the bounce of a kickball over and over again.
3: That piece really speaks summer to me, and and reminds me of a much simpler time when there was no school and the days were just very very long, and and your, your parents forced you to get out of the house first thing in the morning and don't come back till the streetlights are on. But just that sort of freedom and and, and playfulness that comes from being young really seem to be captured all around. It's 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 that sort of typical. Uh, traditional sort of storytelling uh, strength—show me, don't tell me—and and and Liam did a fabulous job of showing where he's from, as opposed to simply telling you.
2: Yeah, and I talked to him a little bit about what inspired him um, with with all of these very vivid senses. And here's what he had to say:
9: It's honestly what I experience just kind of every day, like crows and dogs and birds, like, calling outside when I'm playing in my backyard, Uh, like, bouncing a kickball, like, fresh-cut grass and pine sap is definitely a smell outside. Just almost anywhere in Asheville, if you're driving around, you can see the Blue Ridge Mountains, and it kind of makes, like, a safe little pocket with the mountains around us.
3: Liam also wrote a second poem. This is his meditation on existence and how everything is connected, even polar opposites.
9: Who am I? I am unimportant, one of many. I am all, the one from many together. I am small, a tiny germ clinging to existence. I am large, existence itself, clinging together against chaos. I am heat, so hot it freezes and refuses to move. I am cold, so frigid it burns and scalds and blisters. I am not one thing or the other. I am none and all, unique and indistinguishable. They are the same. I am me."
2: That is deep and and thought-provoking and a lot to ponder in just 35 seconds.
3: It's a true testament of how when we as adults step out of the way, and invite our young people to share what they see and what they experience, they can amaze us. And I'm often struck by how infrequently our young people are asked to speak up and and to share what they think and share how they feel about things. And so this was a really powerful example of what happens when you make space for that. We're going to wrap up this segment by hearing from 14-year-old Emily Jump. She lives in Jamaica, but we got to meet her when she was in Asheville this summer visiting her aunt. Here's what she created for StoryCraft.
10: I am Snow. Ironic, really, as it doesn't snow in Jamaica. Living in the mixing pot of the Caribbean comes with immense spices and explosions of flavor, but despite all the flavors I've tried, the one that stuck to me most was coconut ice cream. The memory of the lost child I played with until their parents came is as beautiful and as vibrant as the coconut ice cream at Devon House. But enough about ice cream. My first day of high school holds a dear place in my heart and nose as the crisp smell of morning dew will forever warm my heart. I believe that thoughts are intricate and beautiful as the way stars are scattered through the sky. And even with insomnia, I never get bored from stargazing through my bedroom window or even listening to the music as memories of my uncle playing the keyboard at night, creating beautiful melodies, harmonies, and some of my favorite memories. A feeling I could never forget would be runner's high. The euphoric feeling then from that day, running around the soccer field with my father, will always hold a special place in my heart, along with all the other memories I've mentioned. They make me who I am. They make me snow.
5: After the youth spent time writing, we'd reconvene. One session, we were able to create some intentions. We wanted to make sure that we were able to set the tone for the day and for the rest of the time that we would be together. Some of the intentions that the, the youth created, included, listen to other stories.
6: Everyone should feel heard and understood.
5: Step into my shoes.
6: Be interested in what other people like.
5: Believe in yourself.
6: Be brave. Be
5: comfortable.
6: Be respectful.
5: Be engaged and look engaged.
6: Be vulnerable.
5: It's okay to be shy.
6: Just support each other. After developing these intentions, we asked if anyone wanted to read their poems. At first, of course, we got hesitation. And then the small beam of light of the first child that spoke up freely and comfortable in front of their peers. Clement Davison is a sixth grader at Montfort North Star Academy. And a force of so much good in this community
8: Hi, my name is Clement, and I'm going to be performing my poem today, and the name of it is Who I Am, and here we go. I am the beat to the music, from the music to the beat. I am so calm that it makes me think I am lifting up off my feet, the sweet beat that makes me leave the street. I'm the youngest child, and I make my mama proud, and I feel like I am the oldest child, and I'm making myself proud sometimes. I think I am the king of the crowd. I am also giving everyone a smile, even when they're feeling down. Lift them high up off the ground, and I tell them don't make a sound. I keep myself from feeling down. Sometimes I want peace and not to hear a sound. I am the best player on the team, and I shine like the sun. But I am just a human being, and I am the leader of the team, like the leader of a pack. And I keep myself from going through the badness, and I throw the badness off my back, and I give myself
5: some slack. So when I reflect on that poem that Clement was able to beautifully describe experiences and things that are important to him and put them into words, I was able to witness the words and the things come from his mind and onto the paper. And what was beautiful is I know Micah was sitting there and being able to bask in the brilliance of it, but I was watching from the outside perspective and just how the words continued to develop. And you also saw where his confidence started to evolve every time he read it and how he started reading it with one adult, but then it just kept going and going and going and I, I just love seeing the evolution of Clement's poem.
6: He captured a, a significant part of my creative heart. Um, I didn't do anything. I just reminded him of who he was. And I really appreciate that line of him saying, he's a king, because I could see it in his eyes that he was remembering that he was this king. There's so many things in life that happen to us that take us away from who we are and how we feel and for him to find that in this session uh, mm. to find that power within himself uh... I, I i will take that with me for a long time he's such a powerful being and i was honored to be able to witness him opening up like that now we're going to take you to one of our second to last sessions. We started by taking the youth outside the grant center. We were able to form a circle outside and then the magic began to
5: flow. As the youth got into the circle, we asked them to reflect on the last few weeks. Artist mentor Coco Eva started the discussion. I would love to go around and you just update me on what you've done and what you learned. I really want to hear about it.
6: Were you here when we wrote our, um... Antonio Stinson started things out. He's the poet and singer we introduced you to yeah. in the first part of the Storycraft yeah. series. What was excellent and great about it
4: for you? Um, for the first time I felt free.
6: That's right. I remember that moment vividly. It was electrifying. Can I, can I ask you a question right quick? Yeah. What did you just say?
4: For the first time I felt free. Can we not take something from that?
6: I got goosebumps.
5: Yeah, me too. What? Say it again, louder.
4: I felt free.
2: I love it.
6: It lightened my soul to hear him say that. He was so casual and so open and said it with ease. Such power behind it. So profound. That experience to me was definitely a highlight from these sessions. I enjoyed all the youth opening up, but when you have those gyms like that and they say them out loud and they don't even realize the power behind them, that's everything.
0: That was Storycraft, a partnership with BPR and Asheville Writers in the Schools and Community that premiered this week on our airwaves. You can hear all four parts unedited, as we had to take a few of them down for time for this show, with the free BPR mobile app or at our website, bpr.org. You're listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. I'm Matt Bush. We close the program today with some investigative journalism from the USA Today Network. I spoke with Fred Cleason-Kelly, who looked at the Section 8 housing voucher program and how it is not living up to its goals, at least in the Southeast.
11: The Section 8 program is a a program that's meant to help uh, poor folks, uh, military veterans, folks who have disabilities, be able to pay for their rent Um, the design of the program is such that uh, the recipient pays one third of the rent and the government covers the rest Uh, the intent is to help people be able uh, to pay for rent food medicine and other basics that they would go without if they did not uh, get help with their housing
0: So you were looking at a lot of parts of this program. It's been around for a while, and President Biden has been talking about ways to expand it in 2021. So what sorts of things were you looking at within the program in your reporting? After George Floyd, you know, the
11: nation uh, had a a heavy focus on racial equality and police brutality. And so uh, in thinking about this program, we wanted to look at whether the federal government had kept its promise. Uh, When the voucher program was created in the 70s, one of the big promises was that people who got vouchers would be able to move to neighborhoods with good jobs and good schools and to areas where historically Black and brown folks uh, have been excluded. Um, And one of the measures that the program um, sets for itself as a standard is how many people they move into high opportunity areas and so what our reporting tries to do is follow people as they they use a voucher or try to use a voucher and then to see if they do get housing where they wound up and and what we found is that people by and large usually end up in racially segregated neighborhoods They usually end up in neighborhoods with high poverty. And so the program actually ends up reinforcing the problem it was meant to solve. Uh, Even worse than that is that a large number of people who try to use their voucher never end up with a lease. Uh, People are trying to move from extended stay motels. They're trying to move out of homeless shelters. And when they uh, go to use their voucher, they encounter one problem after another. And in many cases, uh, they end up with no help at all. Uh, One of the places we looked at was the Shelby area, Shelby, North Carolina. Um, The leader of the housing agency at the time told us that uh, 60% of the folks who get a voucher in that area never end up with housing. There's simply a lack of affordable housing, there's not enough landlords willing to take folks who have a voucher.
0: And the result is often tragic for people who can't get the help they need. Uh, so much to really break down in, uh, in that. Um, first, let's go back. You said something they want to move people to high opportunity zones, I think was the phrase you used. Can you explain to us what that term means?
11: One of the things we know about life in America is that. Uh, housing is central to your existence. Um, Housing determines what kind of school you're going to go to, uh, what kind of jobs are close to your home, uh, what kind of public transportation you do or do not have, uh, if you have access to a park and can exercise. And here in North Carolina, often it determines whether you have a sidewalk in your house to even walk. Uh, And so one of the goals of the program is to take people uh from areas that are troubled where there's less opportunity and move them to areas where there are more opportunities basically to give them a shot at a a better life at a more comfortable existence um a fourth of the people in the program nearly have disabilities and may need to go to the doctor office office often and if there are no doctors in your neighborhood that can make it difficult uh, to get treatment. And so the program tries to give people a choice in where they live as if they were middle class. Um, And what we're finding out is that people often have very few choices. One, One of the big factors in that is the program is time limited. So if you get a voucher, you have 60 days um, or as little as 60 days. And a lot of people run out of time. And uh, at 60 days, they simply have to turn the voucher back in.
0: So much to digest of that last answer you just gave. But let's talk about two before we get into some of the other parts of this. You know, If they're not going to uh, high opportunity zones, you're saying they, they end up staying in a lot of areas that uh, remain segregated and then areas that have a lot of history of redlining. So tell us about that.
11: Yeah. So one thing that's important to remember is that uh, the vast majority of people who who benefit from uh, vouchers are are black and brown people and people with disabilities. Uh, so historically disenfranchised folks. And and so uh, one of the things that our reporting found is that uh, voucher holders are often segregated in areas uh that were redlined uh back in the 1930s and for those who are unfamiliar um in the 1930s the the federal government created these maps in more than 200 cities across the country including Asheville um and a surveyor would come to the neighborhood and take some notes on what it looked like and would often decide whether that area was suitable for bank lending and other types of investment mortgage lending Um, and what happened is if the area had black folks if it had brown folks if it had jews if it had catholics and if it had very poor white people they would give the area a d meaning don't go here don't invest here don't loan here and The effect of these maps uh, has been felt for decades. Um, These areas now uh, often suffer from high rates of poverty, from a lack of investment, and um, the country has not saw fit to try to overcome a problem of its own creation. And these neighborhoods are exactly where voucher holders often live and, and remain stuck.
0: One of the places you did look was Asheville. You mentioned it there. Uh, Asheville's history of redlining is becoming coming more and more to light as we look at the issues that the, the city and, and the surrounding region face. And I think they feed into a lot of what you've been talking about already, about affordable housing and, and the price of housing. But uh, in your investigation into into all the places that you looked at throughout the southeast, what did you find in Asheville? Well,
11: the the one thing that jumped out about Asheville is, is the redlining map. Uh, just how how much of the city is in red, and, and red means bad, don't invest here. Um, and what, what, it, what it reminded me is that history is, is not a mistake. Uh, the things that we see now as problems, it's kind of like when you drive into any city in the country There's usually one side where people like don't go here or don't move there and you kind of know and in your mind, you might go like wonder why that is like that, or how did this happen, and the answer is that. The federal government and our society made it that way on purpose, and when you look at that redlining map in Asheville that happened on purpose, and I don't think that history is examined enough. I don't think that history is uh, given enough credence, and I don't think that history factors enough into our current public policy. Um, I think often, uh, like we see in Asheville, there's a discussion of reparations. Um, And there's a part of me that, that looks at that and says, that would have already been done if we were willing to pay the price that is necessary to make it right. And in a lot of ways, that's how it works with vouchers. Like To make the program work right, there just has to be a lot more investment. Uh, Right now, about one in four people who qualify for vouchers gets help, meaning three in four people are left in the cold. Uh, And even the people who do get vouchers after waiting for years, um they run into a number of of stumbling blocks uh there is uh no money in the program to pay for security deposits and these are very poor folks who don't have a thousand dollars to spend on a security deposit they don't have cars they can't afford moving trucks to move their stuff to a new place and they don't have money to pay application fees to apply for places you take all of that and then at the end even if everything lines up a landlord can simply say we don't take vouchers, and that happens a whole lot
0: in Asheville and everywhere else. You said a lot of people who do even get the vouchers don't end up getting housing. What happens to those people who don't who get a, a Section Eight voucher but still can't find a place to to live? Uh, what our reporting found, uh, and particularly in
11: Charlotte and some places around North Carolina, is that a lot of those folks continue to languish in homeless shelters. Some of them are sleeping in the streets. Uh, Some of them are sleeping in extended stay motels and their vouchers simply run out and uh, they continue to struggle. Uh, One of the ways you qualify for a voucher is that the government determines that you spend an unacceptably high amount of money for housing or that you're in danger of homelessness. And so uh, when people aren't able to use their voucher, I think there's a very good chance that some of those folks will, will end up homeless.
0: And another thing you also talked about was the limit. There's a time limit on these. Um, You said it, I believe, 60 days. Um, How does that factor into the problems that you found with the program, this limit? Yeah, well, well, what the research shows is that because people have
11: a limited amount of time uh, to look for housing, they will basically take what they can get. Uh, they won't search very far outside of neighborhoods that they're already familiar with. They're not going to drive far out to the suburbs to look at that new subdivision because they don't have time to mess around and be turned down and they don't have money to apply for all these different places. And so people tend to move close to places that they already were uh, because they feel that that time pressure and they also accept places um, uh, that are in extremely poor condition, um, and they just want to get in and and have that uh, have a roof over their head because uh, I think there's an idea that that's all they're going to get.
0: Talk about North Carolina generally, but obviously you looked at some of the bigger, faster growing areas of the state and of the country. North Carolina's population is growing. The biggest, um, you know, biggest sort of indicator of that is that it's getting an extra congressional seat over the next decade. It's kind of one of the ways that shows population growth has really exploded in the state. So... Because of that, uh, housing is becoming more and more expensive and there's a la- la- lack of affordable housing in areas like Asheville and, and Charlotte and other places. So um, going forward with some of the things you looked at, I mean, what's wh- what without any intervention, without any uh, intention to make changes to the program, what's going to happen? You can use
11: Asheville as an example in this. You know, for forever in a, in a day uh, in Asheville and North Carolina at large, one of the draws to this place was that it, is, it was affordable. Uh, it was a place that could accommodate people who didn't make a whole lot of money. And, and that's kind of going away. And I think we're at an inflection point uh, in places like Asheville where we have to decide what kind of community we're gonna be. Is this gonna be a community uh, that caters only to people who have a certain amount of money? Or are we gonna do what it takes to accommodate all kinds of people, including people on vouchers. Uh, and uh, many of these people on vouchers actually work. They work in the type of tourism related jobs that uh, that Asheville offers. Um, they, they work in jobs that don't pay a whole bunch of money. And so if nothing changes, I think that will be reflected in the makeup of the community. Uh, simply people will be displaced uh they won't be able to live in places like asheville and charlotte they will have to drive into town if they have a car and if they don't have a car they just simply won't be there there's also a question you know like when the, the editors were talking about this story uh one of the things they they talk about is like yes this this program is important to a certain segment of the population why why is it important to like you know a middle class taxpayer who lives in a Nice home in the suburbs and there was a lengthy discussion and one of the things I said was that the voucher program and affordable housing are needed because society can't really work properly without them. Uh, Somebody has to pick up the garbage and clean the restaurant and serve at the restaurant and cook the food and they have to live somewhere and these businesses can't operate if folks aren't working these jobs Um, what you risk is becoming a place like san francisco where you have to bust in teachers or other places from miles and miles away Um, society doesn't really function at an optimal level and the community the community's values are kind of warped because you're effectively saying we're not a place for everyone
0: That's Fred Cleason-Kelly of the USA Today Network. You can find links to his reporting on Section 8 housing vouchers with the free BPR mobile app or at our website, bpr.org. That finishes this episode of The Porch. The BPR news team is Helen Chickering, Lily Knepp, Matt Piken, Corey Valancourt, Megan Kane, and me, Matt Bush. Listen to all episodes of our show, plus BPR's other two podcasts, Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century, and The Waters and Harvey Show with our free mobile app or through Apple or Google Podcasts. We'll see you on the porch again next month. Stay safe.